0: Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And this conversation was with a a really long time friend, Bobby McGee, one of the all time great running coaches has worked with so many of the world's greatest triathletes and runners uh, and helped them get to outstanding performances along the way. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. It was recorded in July 11th of 2022. So just on one year ago, just over one year ago, actually. Um, Bobby's a dear friend of mine, a fabulous coach, You'll have to listen carefully because he's got that strong South African accent. Um, But it's a lot of fun to catch up with him and there's a lot of learning in this one. So check it out. Bobby McGee. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show, presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And I have just concluded a really delightful conversation with a longtime friend and one of the greatest running coaches in the world that's worked with so many runners and and some of the world's greatest triathletes in really just biomechanics in running, but also on the mental side, Mr. Bobby McGee. And this conversation just went so fast for me, honestly. His passion for all things running and the endurance community is just so contagious that I just find myself being enthralled with everything he has has to say and, and I hope you do too. I really think you'll get a lot out of this one. Bobby McGee is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, he shares a lot of, you know, mental strategies. We talked you know, talk about confidence and doubt and all of these kinds of things. And and then we do talk about, you know, his run form program which he works with, Matt Pendola, a strength coach, and they develop programs to, to really help you buy mechanics in running. But just fantastic episode. Give it a listen. I promise you'll enjoy this one. Um, you can also ask uh, Bobby McGee questions on any question. He is actually over there. He's answered quite a few already. You can look at his answers. He's just so authentic on there. You'll get a lot out of it. Um, ask him questions, listen to what he's got. Plenty of other experts also over on any question across numerous channels. So go check it out and you can use anyquestion.com forward slash mcgee running if you want to use that then that's one way to log in or you can use any question on ios and android anyway i hope you enjoy this one as much as i did and remember success comes to those who endure just one moment longer All right, today I'm joined by one of the world's greatest running coaches, helping both runners and triathletes just optimize their potential for over 40 years. A five-time Olympic coach, he's been involved in in some shape or form with nine Olympic medalists, three of them gold. He's helped hundreds of athletes transform themselves with just proper training plans and looking at their biomechanics and all their mental strategies. And personally, I've known him for... Uh, better part of 15 years, I think. And I've just, I've loved every one of our conversations. His his passion for sport and more specifically running is just incredibly contagious. Um, He's worked with the very best in the business and just helped each and every one of them just optimize themselves. So it's an honor and just a huge privilege to have him join me. So welcome. Thank you for joining me on the Greg Bennett show, Bobby McGee. How are you, mate?
1: I am good, Greg, and it's wonderful to be able to spend some time with you, even if it's in a bit of a more formal environment.
0: (laughs) Yes, a bit different than, us. um, I think, one of the long conversations we had. I don't know. We were on a bus. Do you remember where we were? Where we were, or where we were going? I think we were in Asia somewhere. Do you remember that? We were in Beijing. It was a Beijing, okay. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. right. I don't know what year that was (laughs) or anything, but I just remember being consumed in a conversation with you, and um, all of a sudden, like we're like, "Wow, we're here!" But I think it was like an hour drive. But that's how much I think you and I both are fairly passionate individuals, especially when it comes to endurance sport and specifically running. So that, that was really awesome. But, uh,
1: yeah, what year was that? I think it was 2007 for the test event leading up to <laughs> Beijing. Yeah, No wonder. So it was 15 yeah. years
0: ago. you got yeah, a better yeah. memory than I do, mate. Well done.
1: well done. Yeah, I just remember sitting in the back right-hand side of the bus yeah. looking at the Olympic, Olympic venues as we were driving by and we were sitting next to each other.
0: Yeah, that's right I remember that all right well where where are you at the moment Where are you calling
1: me from? I'm calling you from Lafayette in Colorado which is about five miles or eight kilometers in in uh, in Aussie Speak or Sappho Speak <laughs> from downtown Boulder yeah, yeah so in Colorado yeah I
0: know. it's funny you've gone Lafayette. I find most people that are just outside of Boulder always just say Boulder. Do you ever do that? Yeah,
1: so I I used to say that you know, and then I did an article for South Africa's Runners World, yeah, and they said you know Boulder, the 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 mecca of distance running and and stuff in the world, and you know what they posted? They posted this giant picture of Estes Park, and I thought, well, that, they- <laughs> <laughs> and there it was in Runners World. So now I just tell people where I do live, and you know, it's just. Uh, a little out of boulder less traffic and uh nice spaces for for biking and and stuff like that so yep but i am in boulder county if
0: that counts (laughs) that does count for something (laughs) because estes park for for all listeners is probably what is that about 35k no further than that you got to go all the way up the canyon there Um, yeah
1: probably in that range maybe 50k away
0: 30 miles um beautiful part of the world, but. N- yeah, not Boulder. Not Different Not Boulder, Boulder no. <laughs> <laughs> So, mate, you're in Boulder. When did you move to Boulder? How long ago was that? I first started coming to
1: Boulder in 1992, just when apartheid ended and South Africa was allowed back into the Games. Uh, this was our opportunity and, and, you know, I was working with, a, with an agent at the time and we had 55 South African athletes of varying events all the way from 400-meter hurdles up to the marathon, and now we were starting to look for opportunities for them to race internationally, and uh, our jump-off point was was Boulder, mm. because in those days there was uh, Delta did a did a, a plane ticket that if you bought it um, outside of the states, I think it cost three hundred dollars and was called a Delta Pass, mm. and that meant you could fly anywhere in the United States for a six-week period if you went on standby as much as you liked. Oh, so that's we, awesome. It, it, each of these athletes had this ticket and we just go to all the great road races. And that was a wonderful time for me because I got to learn all the great road races in the U S you know, just, Oh yes. It's beta so, breakers. Yeah. And, and, beta breakers, know, all, my yeah. favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then of course I would know at that time I'd spent three months in the spring, three months in the fall in Boulder, preparing athletes for either Boston or Chicago or New York or,
0: yeah, you know, yeah.
1: some of those, yeah.
0: It's, it's uh, one of my favorite things was always, you know, coming from Australia after finishing our conditioning block and getting to Boulder sort of around that April type of time. And I'd adjust to the altitude, and I want to talk to you a bit more about altitude in a little bit, but I'd adjust to the the altitude in Boulder by kind of spending two weeks at like pretty moderate intensity, nothing too much. But after two weeks I'd fly down and go do beta breakers, you know, the running race as my one hit out, you know, every year. I did it for years and years and years and love that run. I just, it was such a, you know, in San Francisco there, it's such a great in fairness this probably suits my running style get a steep big hill out of the way early uphill and then a long gradual you know finish for a couple of miles going down all the way to the ocean there it's just a fantastic run Love it Yeah,
1: and maybe being an Aussie, you had an
0: advantage in the naked category as well. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, they made me wear my clothes for some reason. I went to go with naked one year. They said, no, mate, get put clothes on that. Put, you better put some clothes on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, they stopped that. I think they've actually stopped. They they clamp, really clamped down on all of that stuff, I think. They um, did,
1: sadly. It was always a bit of fun, you it know. A, so. yeah.
0: It wasn't the people you and wanted to see naked naked though, ever.
1: Yeah, and then they also had that section where where the college uh, men's teams would run attached to each other and race the elite woman.
0: The centipede. The centipede yeah, race, yeah. yeah. The, 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 what that was about the, the, the fish that swam back upstream? Remember those guys? They dress up in. Um, they were a big sort of swim. They were a big fish, and there was about twenty of them. And they'd start at the finish and run against the uh, against the whole field all the way to the oh, to the start line. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> that was just amazing race. O- only in San Francisco, right? Of so course, <laughs> of course,
0: Right. Yeah. Who are you working with now in Boulder? Who who are your athletes that you got? Yeah. I am, I have this
1: really interesting role that has developed over the years now where I coach some athletes completely. Yep. Uh, you know, but uh, those will be some amateur athletes, and then a couple of pros. For example, I'm coaching uh, Vitoria Lopez at the moment, the Brazilian Olympian, mm-hmm. uh, because in the same vein as Bob Lindquist, uh, they approached me. You know, with a with a swim biker background, and not being you know where they need to be with the run. That that's mm-hmm. where I seem to get a, a lot of my of my of my work. Right. So I'm working with her at the moment. But then I have uh, I do a lot of form. Work and sometimes mental skills work, and so at the moment, in terms of the form work, is is Taylor Nib, mm. Flora Duffy, Kirsten Casper. Um, so those those are the the higher profile athletes that I'm working with in that regard. And then I play. Uh, a coach mentorship role with some of the top junior coaches in the country where I, I help them develop their athletes. And so just had a, a young kid, Eli McWard in the world championships in, mm. in Montreal. Mm. And then I, I do this coach collaboration. So I work with Jim Vance and we work on uh, some development athletes, some collegiate recruitment athletes, and then also help him out with, uh, Ben Canute. So I do Mm. Ben Canute's run training design, do the form work, have done for a while. Yeah, I also have been working with Jason West and and on his run uh, and his run training for for a while now.
0: Yeah. Wow. Mate, that's quite the caliber. And each and every one of those, personally, I've watched them adapt and change and become runners. When you look at a Ben Canute, Flora Duffy, uh, yeah. you know, Taylor Nib and, and and Jason West, he's just running off the charts right now. It really is incredible the work you're doing. And what's fascinating, you know, you get some of these, you know, like you said, when you have someone like a Barb Lindquist for people that remember 20 plus years ago, was world number one for a couple of years and, and was a great swim biker, but her running form needed a lot of work and you, and you saw her change over time. Have you found when you get these uber swim bikers, let's call them for the simplicity, that they have these massive engines, how difficult is to kind of almost hold them back? Because I've always seen swimmers in the world of triathlon. They come in, they've got these huge engines, they know how to work hard, they're disciplined, but then they get injured. Their their bone Mm density is not right or their, their ligaments and joints aren't right. How difficult is that for you to sort of manage that process? Well, not difficult, but how do you do yeah. it, I guess? <laughs> I think the
1: first thing that I start from it, firstly, it's a wonderful privilege, right? So you, you get these athletes and, and the hard work is being done, right? They mm. know how to transport oxygen. They, as you said, they discipline, they're incredible mm. hard workers. The first thing is to look at, just like when, you know, with talent identification, we found with, with the collegiate recruitment program that, like the 59 meter athletes make better triathletes more quickly than say 5000 meter athletes right so you need that that power strength component so with the with the triathletes that are coming from that uber swim bike background i think one of the things that you look at is somatotype right so mm. how did they get good at swimming and and you know so are they are they muscling it through the water, or are they technically proficient? Are they bigger individuals, really really broad broad shoulders, carrying a lot of muscle mass, or are they technicians, right? And and they look like they could be a runner. And then the big one, and this is where it really makes it challenging, is is what is that torso-to-leg length ratio, right? So if they have those long swimmers' torsos and those short legs, then you've got your work cut out for you. Mm. Then we know that, you know, very large percentage of swimmers have this incredibly low bone density because they spend such a large part of their of their time in, in low-gravity environments, so their bone density is shocking. Mm. And so it's it's going to the strength work, going to the walking, going to the fractionalized running so that they have that period of time where you can develop not only their form, but but develop their bone density to match up with what they are going to require should they do the right run training. But also, very few of them will ever become distance runners that just naturally take to high mileage and, and you know, the the, the volume approach. You kind of have to take more of a You know, you will know him well. There was a Somalian distance runner by the name of Abdi Bile (laughs) that won the world championships uh, Mm -hmm. over 1,500 meters. But he very seldom ran more than 30K a week. He's a 19, 20 mile a week guy because he had these really fragile shins. And I often compare my work with that. How do I get this athlete to run 10K off the bike really, really effectively? but at the same time don't utilize running to develop them cardiovascularly because they don't need that that mm-hmm. we need to develop the lower limb to be able to withstand the quality work you know so and then it comes down to nuts and bolts each one has something different right they mm-hmm. either have the weak hips or they lack the you know the dorsiflexion or their knees aren't tracking or they don't have the the prerequisite range of motion, but the big one is that ability to operate with eccentric muscle contraction, that ability to put their legs down hard and stiffly and then have the postural ability to translate that elastic return. So some Mm -hmm. of them are too flexible and they muscle the run, right? And so all of the energy that are putting into that is just very sub- economical right so they have big engines but as we've seen right a big engine on the bike with good aerodynamics translates into performance straight away right mm. and similarly a big engine in the water with with decent technique translates into performance but you need that extra component in the run which is the, the you know the bone density the bone strength and the linearity to be able to absorb the run training which is over and above just having good technique because you can get the technique there quite quickly but remember this you know the research the the, the osteo research is fascinating right bones get strong in the plane in which they are flexed as soon as you take them off that plane and that comes down to muscle control then the fractures creep in so the, the metatarsals the tibia the hips you know, uh, the, the pelvis, those are the areas that require so much patience. And so for an athlete with a mentality that this is the workload that I can do and you're telling me to run an eighth of that, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get fit, right? And so it's the same the other way around, right? If you recruit a runner into the sport… And you tell them like, you know, we're going to get you up to being, you know, a 2820 or a 2815 10K runner. And they're saying, yo, I, I know how to do that, but I need, you know, 115 miles a week to do that. No, but you can't do that. I'm only going to give you, you know, 60 or 70 yeah. miles a week to do that.
0: What a great answer, by the way, because you you really, you took my next question kind of out of my mouth right towards the end there when you said, you know, it's a patience game. And it's a patience game for both coach and athlete. But have you kind of found... The, 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 there tends to be a time where you, I mean, every athlete's different, so it's probably difficult, but a time where you can kind of go, okay, I'm going to turn the dial up a little bit. This one seems to have, the bones seem to be where they need to be. The, you know, the strength is where it needs to be. Have you found that there, there's a good little window there? Like if I came to you and as a swim biker and said, Hey, I want to be the greatest triathlete in the world. What, what do I need to do would you say hey it's going to be let's do the first year like this second year like this or or do you just take it and see how it goes
1: no i, I i'd love to be able to say first year like this second year like this no, <laughs> no but it's it's always a suck it and see right so you know as i wrote in in my book magical running you know life doesn't happen without a plan but it uh it never goes according to plan so <laughs> you know i just had this wonderful situation with Victoria lopez right so incredible in improvement in the first six weeks right just unbelievable right straightened out the the cue angle like in a heartbeat no no problem at all uh, but then you know the nature of the sport of triathlon I have to travel I have to go home I have to get visas COVID mm. and everything goes backwards right and then travel with the bike and the bike fit changes and that that hurts the hips and It's Mm -hmm. never a a straight line. I I see straight lines at workouts, you know. I take out the old camera and I'm videotaping and I see what I need to work on and then I see progression and that's all pretty linear. And then, boops, it falls apart again because of of other reasons, right? I mean, take poor old Flora this weekend – you know, one opportunity to qualify for, for World Champs. We do a last little session on Friday. She jumps on the plane on Friday afternoon and her bike doesn't get the Montreblanc. So she doesn't get that opportunity. So she's missing the World Champs, you know, that that kind of uh, thing happens all the time, you know. And so I've learned to be, I think probably from a coaching standpoint, you have to be really, really detached because mm. what happens when you're a young coach is all you see is possibility and you have this absolute clarity of how easy it is going to get get to from point A to point B, mm. you know. But then, but then you don't think about you know. I'm always thinking in those four steps, right? What's the athlete doing wrong? Let's show them what they what they <laughs> what they are doing wrong. Let's consciously get them to doing it right, and then let's just habituate it until they're unconsciously doing it right. Right? Those are the four steps always. But then life gets in the way, right? And so there's physiological injuries, there's mental injuries, there's emotional injuries, which all have to be dealt with, and logistical stuff yeah. too.
0: You know? It's the beauty of being older, like we are, where mm-hmm. I feel like you've been you've had you've been thrashed around so much that it really just starts to become okay. Yeah, that's part of it. Like like it doesn't, compared to when you're in your 20s or it was like the end of the world, you get to the point of going, yeah, no, these things, it happens. Yeah, and (laughs) life
1: is not supposed to be a purple patch. You're supposed to be striving for purple patches, right?
0: I know. And I think the other advantage that I have
1: over somebody like you is is I was never a superstar. I was never an elite, right? I've always been in the service industry. I've always been in the Mm. background. I'm always, you know that, A, for a start, your, your day can't, hinge upon the performance of your athletes, right? Because that's their thing. Mm. Right. So you've got to be you've got to be attached to the process and you've got to be on it and you've got to be awake and you've got to be reflective and you've got to be aware. But all, all you're thinking is is just a little bit better tomorrow. And mm. be okay with how long how many tomorrow's you're gonna to need? I
0: love that. Mate. I love that. I wanna to get to know you a little bit better here, huh? So I mean this has been a great start. I can't believe we're already almost twenty minutes in. I'm like, what? I was like what I just it's so great just to be able to listen to you speak again and, and he hear, hear your passion. It's just so cool. But what I wanna do and what I love to do with my guests is, you know, rewind the clock and just tell me, you know, when when did you sort of find your passion for running? Um, and in, in particular coaching?
1: Yeah, I think the passion for running definitely comes from about 11 years old, you know, just being in boarding school. And we had this one game in boarding school where I discovered my uh, passion for running, right? So I'm at boarding school, Jesuit school, great teachers, but rugby and cricket is king, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And a little bit of field hockey in there as well. And when you have rain uh, and it's midweek or something like that, well, you can't, can't be playing on the rugby pitch, right? It's got to be pristine for the weekend. And you definitely got to stay away from the cricket pitch, right? (laughs) So when it's raining, we played this game called hares and hounds, where Mm -hmm. we'd sit in the final prep on a Saturday morning, which was, I think, about 10 o'clock. You'd sit in prep and you'd tear up newspapers into these tiny little squares. You know, today it wouldn't be done because it would be polluting. But then we'd have these two musette bags that the, the best little runners in the school would get two set bags filled up with these little newspaper squares and we'd get a 10-minute head start and we'd just head off into the bush and we'd leave a trail with these little newspaper squares. And then 10 minutes later, the entire school starts chasing you. And you can go any, anywhere you like. And when they catch you, they take your shoelaces and your socks and they tie you up and they leave you there till the end of the day. Right. <laughs> so you motivated to not ever get caught. Right. And just with the greatest game on the planet, you just go. You do literally run for four or five hours. Right? You probably <laughs> cover 30, 30K. You're not going to have five hours. And uh, that was, that we used to play that when it was raining. No, you guys, not allowed on the pitch. It's and hounds today. That that is awesome. So
0: when you're throwing down the paper, wouldn't you be trying to throw paper the wrong way and stuff to put them off your scent? Yeah, but you know what? That was like part of that whole
1: upbringing, right? So like, yeah, you've got got to leave a trail. But, you know, you just leave a trail and just hope at some point – You'd run out of paper and then you could just go run and hide, you know, because then you, can't <laughs> leave. you Did you, you ever, ever get anymore. caught?
0: Did you ever get caught?
1: Oh yeah. No, I got caught. I got caught. <laughs> because you know, when that when that game started, I was I was eleven, right? And, you know, so either with the the kids went up to in that part of school they went up to fourteen. So there were some kids that were considerably bigger, right? <laughs> So I, I get caught occasionally, yeah, but, but I also learned the tricks of the trade too, you know, so where were good hiding places. and
0: I think that you know, should be an Olympic sport. I think, yeah, <laughs> I think we should. We're talking. I mean, we got all these other new sports coming. You know, I think was it hares and hounds. I think hares and hounds. I think yeah, that's the that's the ultimate oh, yeah, Olympic sport. Yeah.
1: and we used to call it. We also used to call it a paper chase, right? Because that's what you were doing. You were ch- chasing the guys, tossing out the paper. Yeah,
0: and, and from that moment on, you, you know, you're always into running. Were you a fan of watching running on the world stage on TV and that kind of thing, or was well, it?
1: remember TV only came to South Africa in '74. I think. Think. and so mm-hmm. i was already in university when tv came to south africa wow. but my father was nuts about sport and he would always cut out stories from boxing running cricket rugby you know when somebody made 300 in a test match he'd cut it out and he'd throw it in an envelope with a letter from my mom so i would always be getting this news about world sport you know mm. and in those you know in those days it was the the great aussie fast bowlers you know Dennis Thompson Lily. and uh, Lily and Thompson, really? yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that time, John Walker uh, was, you know, was and uh, you know um, Frank Shorter and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I was, uh, I was following that, and then South Africa had this unbelievable running. Uh, legacy right and so all these guys were running really fast but their times weren't put up on the world stage but we'd have these things in the south african papers so- and-so would be number nine in the world if it was allowed and so-and-so would be number six in the world and uh you know so i was already thinking of you know what what it would you know thinking about the world stage in in that regard so i followed sport really closely but that was thanks to my dad you know he just sent me these clippings you know mm. on a weekly basis so
0: that's so cool. When you think of your childhood memories there and you brought up, you know, John John Walker and, and there's just Frank Shorter, some of the big names of the seventies there, the greatest runners in the world yep. at the time. And actually it was quite a privilege for us to when we were in Boulder, you know, to live three doors up from Frank and uh, get to know Frank quite well. He's actually been on the podcast and we had a lovely conversation and um, he's moved from Boulder too, though. I believe he's moved back up to the Northeast, but lovely guy in the end. But uh, I was always a little bit starstruck around Frank Shorter, you know, the godfather of Mm -hmm. running in the US. It was always very cool. I can
1: tell you a very funny little Frank Shorter story. Mm -hmm. So right in that house, three doors down from where you guys lived, I did an interview with Frank uh, and it was for... uh, for a South African program, right? And throughout the program, he referred to me as Barry McGee. You know, he was the great Kiwi distance runner, right? (laughs) And when I got to the end, I said to the guy who was doing the interview, I said, is that okay that he was calling me Barry McGee? And he said, oh, no, it's not okay. We have to do it again. (laughs) And Frank Frank was most gracious to start calling me Bobby for the second round of the interview.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I would have just gone with it barry's my new yes, name exactly. if frank short is calling me yeah. barry i'm barry <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when did coaching come about was that after university or before or during no it was actually in in high
1: school right so i was you know i was privileged to go to private schools in south africa you know with reasonably small student bodies and i wasn't even the best athlete in anything uh, when i was at At school, right? So uh, I still remember the name of the guy, fantastic kid. His name was Warwick Soul. And we used to have this race once a month, the first Monday of every month, we'd run around the bounds of the school. It was maybe 3.2 Ks. And I never won the damn bounds, right? Warwick always beat me. I'd always come second. And then I remember the school sports, the final, right? Warwick came up to me and said, look, you know, and my nickname was Mags at school from McGee. And he'd say, Mags, you know, you... You you better in the eight hundred, you know, and the and the eight hundred second. So so why don't you you win the eight hundred? Let me win the fifteen hundred. And I said, you know, I my my coach hated petty was a comrades marathon runner and he knew nothing about middle distances, right? But he was a good guy. And I realized, you know, whatever race I run first, I'm going to do better in the first race. I'm going to suck in the eight hundred. So I said, no, Warwick, I'm going to give this fifteen hundred a go. And my coach had said to me, you've got to take off with four hundred to go. Warwick will out sprint you. Mm-hmm. So I took off with four hundred to go. I think I ran, I don't know, thick, thick, quewy grass in Pretoria, so semi-altitude. I think I ran like 424 or something for 1,500. That's all right. You know, good, solid girls' high school time, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> all right. Uh, but I, I beat Warwick by about 60 yards because he didn't follow the kick at, at the bell, you know. Uh-huh. And then uh, so that was the only race I ever won at school was the, was the fifty? That's pretty – you know, I, I, yeah.
0: I, I, when I look back at my high school, I never – one one race ever that's
1: incredible yeah
0: I, I went to a bit like you you know i was very privileged to go to a, a great school in newington in sydney there and and i just firstly i was quite a late developer and then the guy that was better than me in my age group was a year above and then he decided to repeat year 12 and so he still came back and beat me (laughs) beat me again so i never won a running race at school but our school was a pretty decent school like we had decent people but um but still i go back and it was like i actually think it was one of the things that fueled me to some degree to to go and have a long career in sport was because I never got to win anything in my youth. It was, yeah. uh, And I look at that as a real privilege. My
1: nemesis was a super athlete by the name of James Kennedy. Mm. And he just, everything he put his hand to, he was good at. So I'd go, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go boxing. And then James would show up for boxing and beat the crap out of me. Okay, I'm going to do 110-meter hurdles, and James would show up and shatter my confidence like you could do anything. <laughs> so, so anyway, end of story, Dad said, like, you You've got to go to college first before you get called up into the military because we were conscripted in those days in South Africa. Mm. So, what do you want to study? And I said, Oh, gee, I'm, you know, I was I went to school when I was five, so I'm graduating graduating at seventeen, you know. And he says, uh, You got to go to college first. And, and he says, What do you want to study? And I'm going, Oh, you know, I did the old curriculum stuff, looking up what I should become, and and eventually I said, Look, I want to do something in sport. And he said, Well, wh- what do you what do you want to specialize in? You know, because you want to become a professional athlete, I said, "Nah, dad, I'll never make it as a pro athlete. I want to, I want to coach." You know, and coaching in those days in South Africa was—you just had to be a school teacher. So I went and st- I went and studied for ed and and I got a a degree in English literature and physical education, human movement studies, and then did post grad stuff in that. And when I went back post grad, I knew exactly what I wanted to, to do because I was coaching already. And so I made everything about my postgrad studies in perceptual motor aspects and sports psychology about distance running mm. and so from from seventeen, I kind of figured out that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to coach.
0: I love that. I love that you had this conversation with your dad. I love that you. Kind of a realistic because it's very hard for a seventeen-year-old to go. No, I'm not going to be a professional athlete. I feel like, I feel like all seventeen-year-olds believe they can be a a professional athlete, but to take that off the table and go, no, I'm going to go do human movement or phys ed or whatever it's called these days. But I I think that's that's really cool. And did you go into? Were you? Did you spend your time in the military then? Or
1: oh yes, I did. When I, if I'd gone when I was seventeen. I would have gone for nine months, but by the time I finished my degree, I w- it was already two years. So, the, the, the conflict in Angola and in uh, Southwest Africa at the time, before it became Namibia, had escalated and, uh, you know, so I ended up going for two years and then doing another two years worth of, uh, of camps, you know, reserve work.
0: Oh, really? Wow yeah so you actually served yeah yeah i actually saw actually saw, saw action. action as well yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. In,
1: in in northern namibia yeah
0: and what years were they when were you there 79 and 80 So two 80. years
1: i was there yeah and then i started teaching in 81
0: okay and then- and, and so after that then you moved into teaching but then yep. coaching as a side gig is that how it kind of worked in south africa so no you-
1: well in south africa All of the coaching is done by school teachers. So when you're the the phys ed teacher, then then that's all you do. You're basically a full-time coach, right? Yeah, yeah. So my very first job, I arrived and I wanted to do the distance running, but there was a very respected distance running coach there already. So my first coaching job in high school, actually I coached distance runners, marathon runners when I was in the military. So the guys, you know, just Mm. helping out friends and so on and got some guys into the into the low 230s, you know. Wow. And then, of course, we had a lot of running there, and I was lucky to be in officer's school with the national record holder in the steeplechase. His name was Nolly Mankies. And so we really used to take on another guy, uh, South African school's cross-country champion, uh, Errol Pretorius. So we had that 2.4K run with, with equipment, and that was the second race that I ever won in my life was running against officers in that mile and a quarter or 2.4K run uh, with full kit and carrying your weapon. And I think I ran 2.4. I think I might have cracked nine once.
0: Yeah. But with all that gear on, that's insane. Yeah, I love it. But the steeplechase guy ran it
1: like 8.20 or something for 2.4K carrying a weapon and full kit.
0: Wow. I love these anyway. stories. I love these stories, mate. And I, I really appreciate you sharing with me. Um, so then after that, fast forward a little bit, how long did you stay as a phys ed teacher before you kind of went full-time into the world of running? You said earlier that after apartheid, you, you went to Boulder in 92. Yep, yep. Was that the kind of the all-in stage into coaching and, and running?
1: Yeah, not, it, probably around about there. You know, my first job as a high school coach was, was women's field hockey. I coached the... And the D team, uh, <laughs> girls' high school hockey te- field hockey team. And that was the best sport I ever played at, in university. I was a field, ho- field hockey goalkeeper, and that's the highest level I got to. I got to South African country districts, which is like, you know, the minors. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then in 92, I was, my headmaster pulled me in and he said, look, you know, you're spending all afternoon coaching, and I really want you to become a head of department. I don't want you to just stay a classroom teacher, you know, at, at some point you're going to have to make a choice here. And so I chose to take the risk, let go of the pension and all that sort of stuff and started, uh, you know, coaching on my own, you know. So wow. I coached the high school kids for 12 years and then I was, in the afternoons I'd drive to the University of Stellenbosch and I had a bunch of uh, college athletes there and that's that's sort of when I made the switch.
0: That's awesome, mate. And was there a point in time then, you know, you were doing running for all of that time? Was it in triathlon? Was it Barb Linquist? Who, who was it that brought you over into the triathlon world?
1: Yeah, actually, I started doing triathlons myself in 86. I was huge ah. Dave Scott. My my, my big hero was, was actually Scott Tinley because he was the runner <laughs> and I loved the way he wrote. Yeah, yeah. And I was like a huge Tinley fan. You know, and, and I, you know, followed the Zen Master and and all those boys. You know, I, I you know, I like Melina and I like Alan. <laughs> you know, I probably liked Alan more than Dave. And then I got to know Dave well. I got to know Mark well as well. But yeah. anyway, they were the heroes. And and I said to myself, look, this is exhausting. I don't want to. F- I don't feel like running. And I wasn't a great runner anyway. You know, it's like even when I was coaching in the early days, I you know I would lucky if I break thirty five for ten k even then i said look triathlons for me swim bike run is my escape and i'm going to do triathlon that was started in 86 but then in 2002 i was already well ensconced in the u.s and i'd coached an athlete back in south africa who turned out to be a brilliant triathlete you know world class triathlete but she also was very very good national class runner Libby Burrell and she ended up being the performance yeah yeah she ended up being the, the high performance director of USA triathlon yes
0: yes and
1: that's when Bob fell down in Houston in the Olympic trials for the 2000 Olympics and then she said to Bob listen I know a guy I think that can help you with your run and she introduced me to Bob and she put that whole thing together Ah. And that's where I started working with with USA Triathlon and their triathletes in 2002.
0: That's fantastic. Well, you and I started triathlon about the same time. 86, 87 was my first time I kind of got into the sport. And like you, I think I was more of a Mark Allen, you know, the grip fan. Yep. My best mate was a huge Dave Scott fan, like Massive, And we used to, you know, race each other all the time and and bicker and argue over who was the greatest and all of that nonsense. And, um, (laughs) you know, it still still goes on today. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It was (laughs) happening in the late 80s as as we were sort of 15, 16-year-old pimple-nosed kids, you know. And it was, um, and I don't know about you, but, you know, getting to know Mark and Dave over the years now, it's been, I still reflect on that a lot because it's kind of a little surreal, you know, that what you put out in the universe, it can kind of come around. And, uh, you know, I was in such awe of those guys and, and the sport and Melina was another one that I've got to know. And I, I, even just to say that they're my friends is kind of like, oh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, no,
1: (laughs) that, that is amazing. Yeah. No, I subsequently, you know, uh, Mark and I bumped into, into each other a lot and we shared billings and, And stuff like that So I I got to know Mark better I mean, I I got to know Dave pretty well But Mm -hmm. it's, you know, more from the On the distance running side But I never did get to meet Either Tinley or Melina you know, because uh, I, you know, I was here later, and by that time I was involved in big city marathons yeah. and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, I was more a Lopez Deke fan at that point in time because that was my business. Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. Oh, De Castella, come on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, that's one of the great Aussie runners. Well, let, let's shift gear a little bit because I want to talk about some of your coaching style. With, I've, I've, I enjoy all these stories, mate. So you have to excuse me, but. I want to kind of start off in one area that I know you enjoy talking about, and that's kind of mental strategies and, and um, mindset, if you will. Um, and just, I'll throw a couple of questions at you just to get your thought on them. But the first one, because this kind of comes, it's a little bit personal for me, and I talk about it on this show a fair bit, is kind of struggling with confidence Um and curious to hear your thoughts. And some of these, I've, I've listened to them on any question where you've been answering questions. But I like this one um, that you, you know, what advice would you give an athlete that struggles with confidence? Love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I. It's just the most fascinating field, confidence, you know. Um, and I, I keep listening to definitions and then I apply what I've been doing with athletes in that. I, I think at the moment I keep coming back to bandura's work from from the 70s you know with this whole concept of self-efficacy where you're focusing on what you have done in training and you're focusing on how you have raced, and you're focusing on how you have executed things and that that's your source of confidence right otherwise you get stuck in that conundrum Mm -hmm. i need to do well to be confident but i need to be confident to do well right <laughs> but if if what you are focusing on I have in good old takens fashion right I have a specific set of skills <laughs> but if you would just pay attention to your specific set of skills and that that's your toolbox right so I'm every day I say this to athletes don't be out there running or racing in a triathlon hoping for something to happen or hoping for things to change or hoping that certain feelings would go away, right? You have a toolbox and reach into that toolbox. And, and if that toolbox means recollecting what you've done in training, recollecting what you've done previously in races, recollecting what you've done recently, you know, you look at a hill and say, damn, this is a hard hill, but it's not as hard as the 50,000 hills I've done before this. Right. And just, just keep focusing on what you can do and have done and have proven to yourself that you've done that's that should be truly your your most important form of self-confidence because great coaches often say the worst part in their business the worst part of their life is when the athlete walks out onto the pontoon right and they are now no longer able to ask them questions about what are they are thinking about right they're on their own and they're just hoping to god that they're thinking about what they think about when they perform well so yeah. that it's the same person Mm. You know, so I think that focus of your confidence is your ability to just bring no more than what you have to bear on the day.
0: Focusing on the process years ago, probably around 10, 15 years ago, I was somebody that Laura was always like my pocket psychologist. She was always very good at a calming, you know, get myself to neutral type person. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. actually look at my resume, when you see Laura and I meet, my resume hockey stick curves through, through the roof, you know, it changes a lot of things because doubt and confidence, you know, we, we start to find, get, get myself to neutral and I'll be fine. And, and there was a great quote I used to always go back to, and it was, you know, and I don't know whose quote it is. So I'm sorry, i I should be referencing somebody, but you know, doubt has, has killed more dreams than failure ever did. And mm, I love that mm, quote because yeah. it's kind of making failure a part of the process and it's okay because it keeps the yeah. dream alive, yeah. you know, but doubt in its own is actually taking the dream fully away. And it's like, I always loved that one because it was like a, just a simple place for me to go to and go, okay, <laughs> don't doubt yourself. Yeah. Failure okay. Yeah. and <laughs> the, the,
1: the research shows that, right? So doubt is hanging out in non-presence. So you're worrying about things that are not now. Mm-hmm. And they they kill that. I think it was John Kabat-Zinn that said, the only thing you should doubt is the doubt. Mm-hmm. Doubt the doubt. <laughs> I, like else. <laughs> I like
0: that too. I like that too. That's really cool. So, all right, let's shift on a little bit here on this because that was a really great answer and I appreciate it. Um, managing your athletes after coming back from poor performances, it's much in line of what we've been just talking about. But the, the rebuilding, you know, it's like uh, my old coach used to say, money lost, nothing lost, Lost confidence lost, everything lost. And that mm-hmm, sort of poor mm-hmm. performance of going. look, it's part of the recipe is like, I was just saying, you know, failure is, it's part of the recipe that's gonna make you great. Um, how, do, how do you work with athletes that are like, heads a bit low, they're, they're kicking tires? What, 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 what kind of thing do you do? I
1: had a top coach say to me yesterday, Bobby, what I always appreciate about you is you don't bullshit me. And that's, that's, that's rule number one. No BS. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely no BS. And so what you do is, is I always look within. And I'll the first thing I'll say to the athlete is is I'll say, maybe I made a mistake here so that they immediately feel, okay, there's more than just me involved here, you know. And that's the nature of endurance training, right? You can train brilliantly for three months and then screw up one workout Mm -hmm. just one and it all goes down down the tubes right so the first one is i'll I'll look within and say what did i change what did i try was i trying to be greedy is there something that i did here that might have led to that then i'll i'll express that to the athlete. all right and then i'll also give the athlete space but there's a golden rule a golden psychological rule in that conversation there is what happened and then there is what are you making it mean Mm -hmm. And when they get that distinction, okay, I did a 70.3, all right? This was the temperature. This was the conditions. This was what was going on in the swim. This is what so-and-so did. This is what I did. This is how fast I swam. This is what happened. This is the reality of what happened. Let that sink in Mm -hmm. so that they get the distinction. Okay, now you're giving it meaning. What meaning are you giving it? To it. That was a poor performance because poor is a judgment word, right? I sucked out there today, you know, whatever. But if they get that distinction, you're going, okay, now we can work here on the interpretation and we can work here on what happened, mm-hmm. right? We can improve here and we can improve here. But that gives you, gives the whole thing parameters that are not just this dark mass of what the hell just happened. (laughs) The big thing is to throw some light on it. Now you can start doing what human beings do well, is, is they can analyze and they can start pulling things apart. But if you give the athlete that, you take them out of that part of their failure brain, the embarrassment brain, the what's going on brain, the confusion brain, and you put them back in. All right, let's just get out the old tools and pull on the old gloves and start figuring this thing out. Yeah. You know, then that's the, then that's the step forward. That's that's my main process when an athlete comes back from the bad one.
0: Laura used to handle performances that went up to what she was hoping for far better than I did and I was an athlete that did a couple of things that I, I was very disciplined about that Even if I had a very poor performance to what I was hoping for, I would always cross the line if I had friends and family there or whoever support staff, and put on a smiling face because I found that that was always mirrored by the people around you. So if you if you were wallowing and you were upset, well then you're going to get this almost this mirroring effect from the rest of the team that they don't know how to handle you, and it's like and it becomes this downward spiral. But I found one of the things, even if on a bad day. Things didn't work out, awful day. Just cross the line, have a laugh with the team around you in that immediate once you cross the line. But I'd say to Laura, but I need you to give me a couple of hours when I get back to the hotel room or whatever. Well, I, I want to wallow for a moment because it did mean something to me and I need this little bit of a time. But I was also very disciplined at going, right, Monday morning or whatever time zone I put on myself, okay, it's over. And during that wallowing part, I also forced myself to write everything down while it was super fresh. Because I always found a day later, two days later, you're like, oh, what if I'd done that? What if I'd done that? But when you're still hurting and the suffering is still real in your body, it's a really good time to write down <laughs> how you really, really feel. And then you can always come back to it. But most of the time, if you've written it down, you remember and it helps you kind of move on. But, but I love your distinctions there. Uh, uh, being able to sort of understand yeah it's it's
1: it's like prefontaine said right you you do not want to dishonor the commitment right so you so athletes have this conversation right where you go i did not do well but i cannot afford to pretend that it wasn't important to me because that would be dishonouring the commitment.
0: Right? Mm. Oh, I like that, Bobby. Um, see, and, see, yeah. you just got quotes, quotes for me. I've been doing it all wrong. I could have just been saying that. <laughs> I love it. Uh,
1: no, on. I, you know, I just think of the word wallow, right? Um, yeah. And it has self-indulgence about it, and it has. Uh, You know, all that about it, but but you are right, and and that's sometimes why semantics are important, right? You weren't wallowing, you were fully experiencing your disappointment, which is essential. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: but you, you've got to take away the, the, the self-pity and the self-indulgence, mm-hmm. you know, and replace that with compassion. But that doesn't mean to say you don't feel it very, very deeply. Right. But you often hear skilled coaches saying, I like a, an athlete with an even temperament, you know, not knowing whether they succeeded or failed by the expression on their face when they cross the line. But that comes back to that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. What happened? This is what happened how you feel about it you know what are you making it mean now 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 you've got two places you can talk effectively
0: hey let, let's shift gear a little bit a little bit on mindset but I also want to get into the specifics of running tell me about what you you're up to now with with run form and, and uh, matt pendola uh, tell me a little bit about more of the program you guys are putting together
1: yeah yeah so you know i've got to bring another one of your neighbors into play here steve jones right oh yeah right <laughs> the, across the, the great, yeah 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 the, the the great marathon runner from wales uh wonderful man too mm. that he is mm-hmm. and and he used to back in the day we used to both coach triathletes and he didn't enjoy it right because he just felt that he needed more of them he needed them to move away from the swim and bike so he could make an impact on their run and in theory that's a good idea right you know but i always looked at runners and i have been very lucky to have always distinguished runners in two ways right and that is that they are a physiological entity and then they are a mechan- mechanical entity and the mechanical entity expresses the physiological entity, right? So it doesn't matter how big the VO2 max is without the mechanical component, they can't express the size of that engine. You can do it on the bike, but you just can't do it on the run. Mm. And so I've always distinguished between what I call the central and the peripheral. The central, there's so many good, good, good central coaches out there. But if you look at the ratio of biomechanists to Exercise physiologists out there, the biomechanists are overwhelmed, right? There's just <laughs> none of them. And they don't want to mess with running because running is a first language activity, right? So mm-hmm. imagine you're coach, coaching race walkers or you're coaching cyclists or you're coaching swimmers, or you're coaching runners. Those first three have magnificent syllabi of objective technique training to mm-hmm. become better at those sports. There's no real mechanical syllabus. There's a very good description in the the biomechanical literature of what the running gait is. But when you add things like posture and elastic return and joint stability and balance and linearity and angular momentum and all those things, it becomes ridiculous. And so a lot of people would rather stay away from it. I never forget two prominent AIS biomechanists in in Australia saying to me Bobby you speak a slightly different language than we do because you kind of made it up for what you see but we we have common ground there so we see what you see whether we're using a Vicon or you know whatever analysis tool we're doing but we don't feel that we can impact it in any way shape or form in running and that's where I felt my niche came but but sometimes you know (laughs) We have this terminology in in mechanics, right? Called being a motor moron, right? And endurance athletes are often motor morons, right? (laughs) They are not beautiful movers. Mm. And so, teaching somebody with a huge engine who, you know, who just has not got the athleticism to translate what you want them to do, especially when fatigue is added, that whole idea fascinates me because where the running gate lives. In the brain and in the central nervous system versus where all the other sports lives is a very hard place to reach. Like right? so, it's like changing your first language, your native tongue, mm. versus you know a language that you learned me- differently, right, mechanically. Mm, mm. And so, creating resistances, limb isolating, trying to create movements where the athlete's not trying to change anything, whether. They're literally trying to learn something from new, which will then translate over to their run. That fascinates me. And so always had the run drills, always had the dynamic mobility stuff. And and in later years, the last eight or 10 years, I've been using dynamic mobility drills as a diagnostic tool. So I'd be able to give somebody 15, 20 minutes of dynamic mobility drills. And then I would be able to go to the strength coach and say, look, we need work here. Great story from from Beijing, Hunter had to run a 5,000 meters. Hunter Kemp mm-hmm. had to run a 5K on the track. Uh, George Dallum had given him a 5K to run. I think he had to run 15 flat or something. And he might have run like 15.08 or 15.04. But while he was cooling down, I went down to uh, the chiropractor that worked with Laura. I think Laura introduced him to the U.S. team, Keith, right? Oh,
0: Alex, Dr. Alex Keith. Yeah, one of my good friends. Yeah, Dr. Alex Keith. part of our yeah. team for... 15 years, yeah.
1: Yes. So I went down to Dr. Keith, I went down to Alex, and I said, Alex, when Hunter comes in for his treatment, don't let him tell you anything. I just want you to look here, here, and here. Mm. And Hunter came in, and Alex said to him, shush, don't say anything. And he went went here, and he went there, and he went there. And Hunter said, oh, those places feel horrible. How did you know? And he said, oh, Bobby, just come in. He'd been watching you run, and he thinks these areas need some attention. You know, so that kind of looking at an athlete running and going, how can we make that smoother? Because I truly cannot give them the running skill, right? That's what they're born with. It's primal, right? Your ability to run is primal. Mm. But what you can do is you can reach inside the athlete and you can take away all those little pieces that make them less effective of a runner and return them to the runner that they've always been at say 14 or 15 or 16 from a mechanical standpoint. Mm. And so, so that's my approach is I'm going, what's going on? Why is that happening? What can I create that will replace that movement that now has been adapted?
0: What I took away from that and I love is how closely a biomechanist and a, a bodywork specialist need to be able to cooperate and work together. To be able to really help an athlete or, or anybody kind of optimize their human potential, I think that's really cool. That you know you and you and Alex cooperate, and and you know obviously Hunter Kemper, one of the best American uh, yeah. male athletes we've ever seen. I, I think that's really cool. Yeah.
1: Well, that's exactly what I've now discovered. With I always had the drills, and I always had the dynamic mobility work right and and working through that creating little drills for each athlete to address that but the pieces that were missing were how do i improve that athlete's dynamic range of motion how do i get the athlete strong enough especially now with the advent and the realization that it's all about leg spring stiffness Mm -hmm. that's where it is so you've got to get that leg Aligned, You've got to get that pelvis aligned. You've got to get that tissue to a point where it can load eccentrically, and then it can express that, that loading in release going forward, and that's where, where Matt came into it. So now I find I can take an athlete, you can t- take the video, I can create the drills and the dynamic mobility stuff around that athlete, send that whole report off to Matt, and Matt can add in the banded dynamics, which is the strength work specifically designed for that eccentric motion of the runner, and then add that loaded mobility, which has always been a puzzle for me from, you know, the mid-80s is like – Okay, we learned that stretching shouldn't be dynamic. No, no. Now it should be dynamic. Now we, it should be passive, or it it should be held for thirty seconds, or it should be this, or it should <laughs> yes. be that. You know, and it's all over the place. But mm-hmm. this whole idea of putting the muscle in control, which is this loaded mobility concept, you know, something as very simple as as a reverse Nordic, right? That's exactly what the quads need. When you start off doing a reverse Nordic, it feels like. Mm-hmm. A a massively scary strength exercise. But after doing it, you go, oh my goodness, I feel in I feel powerful. I feel springy. How did that happen, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just loaded mobility. <laughs> that's all it is. And when those things come together, Matt and I have had so many stories where we work on an athlete and I just had that experience recently with Victoria Lopez. She put a little post of like a seven second clip I took of her running she comes from this uber swim bike background, right? Mm. And a whole bunch of pro athletes out of South America said, what did you do? You're not the same person. How is that possible? <laughs> right? And I didn't teach Victoria a different skill. I didn't teach her a different way to run. I didn't say, let's go from heel to forefoot. I didn't say any of that stuff. I just kept putting stuff in the way so that she would respond to that resistance in a healthy fashion and the runner that she could always be before she did these thousands and thousands of meters of swimming in the pool is now starting to come out. I love So that. there were places in Montreal this weekend where she's literally in the lead, mm. you know, mm. and obviously not yet confident with her new running ability but But you can see now that she now looks like a runner.
0: It's the ultimate dance, isn't it? It is. It It really is. I've always thought of running as the ultimate dance. It's something we take for granted. Like you said, it's our first language, so you kind of take it for granted. But when you get it right, when everything, when the timing, when when your foot's hitting the ground at the right time and the right place, and I I can remember moments in my own training where – it was the ultimate freedom of movement and, and almost like your brain was hitting the top of the skull because the timing was just so perfect and the tempo that went the whole way through the body was just, it was like bang, 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 yeah, you know, yeah. and when nothing hurt. I remember, I remember doing one run in Boulder <clears throat> before the high V race in 2011 and I remember running, uh-huh. kind of, nothing hurts. I can run as fast as I want and nothing is hurting and it was about a week out from that big race. I witnessed one of those runs, yeah. Yeah, and it just felt so good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I witnessed you doing that once in New York when they turned it into a a duathlon. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) When I was an idiot, I ran off the front, but it felt so easy. I was like just tapping along, um, and then I was like,
1: yeah. You were all over that. That would look fantastic.
0: Oh, thanks. That whole thing of making it look
1: easy, right? I have these years and years of experience riding next to sub-210 marathon runners where I'm jumping off the bike every 5k and giving them bottles up off the palm of my hand and then trying to stay with them just for 30, 40 meters, you know, yeah. and then jump, jumping back on the bike, just realizing, but wait a minute, I've been riding next to these guys for 30k, their mouths are closed. And they're talking to each other and they're going 450 pace, you know. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just like,
0: it's impressive, it's, isn't it?
1: It's insane, yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing too with these athletes. When they allow you to mess with something as precious as mm-hmm. their running, it is an incredible responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: when, when, when somebody who's already, say, top 10 in the world wants to get better, you know, and you see their application and their willingness to look silly, and that that's when it all makes sense, you know. So, you will often get, you know, an athlete that only comes to see you because you've got some sort of credibility. But if they'd listened to their own coach, they would have got the same information, but it's so fragile and so ephemeral that they that they just don't yet trust that you know and that and that's a process and so that to me is the greatest surprise and privilege because i have the worst imposter syndrome in the world (laughs) if somebody shows up and i'm going really you think i can do something for you you're like way out
0: there that's awesome
1: it's it's still it's still the same you know yeah but
0: you're grateful and you feel privileged and you bring the right energy and and that's that's what people are attracted to and um I want to go back to one point you sort of said, you know, you get off the bike and you get to run with them for 40 meters or whatever. <laughs> and and um, it takes me back to early, early on in my my sort of running or triathlon career. Um, and I just had Simon Whitfield on the podcast two weeks ago with Craig Alexander. and We all used to train at Balmoral Triathlon Club and, uh, and with other athletes and sometimes just together. And we'd run with better athletes than us. And we do these runs where we would get like, 15 of us in a line and there'd be no talking and everybody was popping and running in the same rhythm and you just eyes forward great posture and just just sort of almost skipping dancing you know it's like this like and you'd go for an hour and every now and then the leader would fall back and go to the back and then somebody else would lead and you'd change the pace and everything but I think doing that kind of thing and almost like I said earlier, the ultimate dance, but dancing in rhythm, it was amazing how when your foot hit the ground, you propelled, so much more than you would have if you'd just been running on your own because there was an energy in that group of just bounding or, or popping together. Just from you saying that you ran next to the to the runners that you did, it was like, yeah, that was really special to always run with a group like that and get in the same rhythm and feel that pop. I always loved that.
1: Oh, yeah. But I'll never forget standing on a slope in Edmonton on that downhill when the course used to run up that really steep hill and yeah. run back down again. Yeah. And watching you guys come down the hill and I've still got some slow motion footage of (laughs) Bevan Doherty. I I think the greatest downhill runner the world has ever seen, including the running community, not just triathlon. Mm. And Bevan's got that head cocked slightly to one side, you know, and and just absolute, especially in slow motion. You watch him put his foot down on the ground, and then you watch his shoulders and stuff. Mm. There's no breaking. He's got it perfectly matched up. And I, I get this almost visceral gut feeling even now thinking about how beautiful running is when you understand how magnificently coordinated it is with physiology and physics you know and 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 mechanics it's just and, and I'm, here I am, you know, the thing that I studied to do, I'm still doing, you know, 43, 44 years later. And I'm so far away from being even remotely bored. <laughs> I'm like, this yeah. is,
0: this is why, you know, having you, I, I've got to have you back by the way, because I've got, trust me, my notes here, we, we've only just scratched the surface. And um, <laughs> so if if it, if you let me, I, I'd love to have you back on this show, but I, um, I just love you. You get it you're the same as I am when it comes to just that absolute raw passion and that sense of movement. That's why I think you and I could banter on about how much we love running and love watching perfect form and people that find that right rhythm and, and you feel it inside of you. It's a feeling, it's not even what you're seeing. It's a, it's a, it is beautiful when it's done right Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and not this. So I, I love that, but I think it's a good place to stop actually right there because I think just talking about how much we both just love running is, is a really great spot. But, I really appreciate you, mate. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, um, your journey. Fascinating, uh, what you're doing and how you're working with athletes and um, and working with Matt Pendola and finding the strength and the the loaded mobility, as you put it. I think that's all fantastic what you guys are building together. If people want to work with you guys, what's the best place to find you to reach out? Yeah,
1: they can either come to uh, bobbymcgee.com or they can go to Pendola Project. And the the name of this new program that we put together, which is basically what we're doing with elite athletes, is called Runform. That's all it's called. Just R-U-N and then capital F-O-R-M. And it should be in a presentable format by the end of this month.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. I think I saw sort of Ben Canute running on Instagram or something the other day. I'm like, gee, there's an improvement there over <laughs> 10, 10 years. Do you know what I mean? Just just to watch. Yeah. I don't know how fast he was going or anything or but it was like it's pleasant to watch.
1: Yeah, and before it might not have been that pleasant, right? No,
0: he was a little bit back and a little just yeah. a little bit tight, just but now there's a flow to it that's just like, and he's got the timing right and the tempo and and the foot placement. So anyway. It is,
1: yeah, he's a great kid because his willingness to work and, and I've been working with Ben in one way, sh- shape or another since the World Championships in um Budapest when he was a junior oh wow you know so we uh, and he, he's the kind of kid that has worked so diligently at this and has been a student oh yeah and, and he deserves all the rewards he gets because he's put in the hours oh, Absolutely. I'm a huge yeah. fan,
0: huge huge fan of Ben Canute so Ben if you're listening mate big shout out because you and I both Bobby respect the hell out of that guy and, and the amount of work that he's put in and the dedication so I think there's still big things to come for him but Bobby, mate, thanks for your time and, again, sharing your journey and so so much of your knowledge. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Very
1: welcome, Greg. Fantastic spending time with you, and thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course, mate. And for listeners, you can find all the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and everything at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks again, Bobby. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would
1: truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.